Welcome to the first ever podcast of Barking from the Rooftops. My name is Jim Gillis and I'll be your host today. My guest is Michael Shikashio, a world-leading expert on dog aggression. He works exclusively on aggression cases and I'm thoroughly looking forward to talking to him. We'll be discussing all things relating to dog aggression. Michael is an internationally sought-after keynote speaker and presenter. He is fully certified through the International Association of Animal Behaviour Consultants, the IWABC. He's a full member of the Association of Professional Dog Trainers, the APDT. He's the founder of the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and currently teaches in more than 25 countries. He is referred to by countless veterinary professionals, rescue and shelter organisations and behaviour professionals from all over the world. I'd like you to join me in welcoming Michael to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, great to have you on. First things first, how are you doing? Doing well. Yeah, this is great. It's your inaugural uh, show, so congratulations. Thank you. Good. Um, so for, for anyone unfamiliar with Mike, um, maybe you could just give a little bit of a background, um, an overview of your background and credentials, Mike, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been working with uh, dogs for about 20 years and been ex- focusing exclusively on aggression cases over the last decade or so, which uh, kind of grew my interest into learning more about aggression. And I uh, started moving towards uh, working with other trainers and teaching other trainers and uh, teaching courses. And so that's been my path over the last, uh, at least exclusively over the last few years. And uh, I've been uh, involved with different organizations. I was president of the IAABC for um five or so years or something like that. And um, yeah, I've been always uh, looking to be deeply involved in the dog training community and uh, work and help with uh, dogs with aggression issues. So that's a little bit about me. Great stuff. When were you president of the IWBC? Um, I guess I'm into my third year, so before my time. It was, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been out of the board role for about Three years now, so actually, yeah. So, so what's this? 2021, so 2013 to maybe 2018. I think I was there. Okay. Gotcha. And what got you into dog training in the first place, mate? I was doing a lot of fostering, fostering of dogs. So I was uh, working with just a lot of different rescues, and uh, I didn't know much about dog behavior then. In fact, that would uh, it would be comical if I videoed myself with working with the foster dogs and was able to show that now but that was 20 years ago and that's um I wanted to learn more about dog behavior because there were so many of these dogs ending up in being returned to the rescues or to the shelters and ending up having these awful outcomes in some cases and uh there was some help available but I felt that uh, you know for me to best help the dogs was to learn more about behavior because that was the number one reason for them being surrendered so I uh, kind of started to pursue that path. And again, one thing leads to another, as they say. And, and did you find living with dogs with with behaviour problems uh, stood you in good stead to then move on to, to work with them? Sometimes they're the best teachers, aren't they? Those dogs that we live with that have quite definitely. complex issues. Yeah. yeah, definitely. The best thing, I, new trainers, always I always recommend one of the best things you could do is either go volunteer in a shelter because you're going you're gonna to get dirty, you're going to get your hands on dogs that are going to be jumping all over and you get to learn a lot of things, but also fostering dogs. If you could foster dogs in your home, if you have the space, uh, that's one of the fastest ways to learn about, uh, you know, what works and what doesn't, because the dogs are going to let you know if they're going to be your best teachers. Sure. When did you first um, decide to work exclusively on aggression cases? Because that's that's all you do now, isn't it? Just work on aggression. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. There wasn't really like an actual tipping point. It was kind of gradual. And I started phasing out all of my other uh, cases and referring them out to other trainers. Um, and then it just, uh, just happened to be at the time where I was getting so busy that I could you know, afford to also just take aggression cases exclusively. That's a little bit of a shift, you know, if you start specializing in something. At first, you're getting rid of all, you know, you're not getting rid of, but you're you're shifting all those cases of that business away if you want to exclusively focus on something. But then <laughs> once people know you focus on a particular area, then you get really busy because you get all the referrals. It's just like a specialist would in the medical field. Uh, if you're only a handful of somebody that specializes in that issue, then you're going to get a lot of a lot of inquiries in business because people a lot of people don't want to take aggression cases. So um, just like I don't want to take separation anxiety cases, so I you know give those to other folks. Sure, sure. And where can people learn more about you, uh, Mike? You've got your own website, and that is aggressivedog.com. Did I get that right? Yep, aggressivedog.com. It's the easiest one to remember. Yep. <laughs> Sure. And, and in there, they can find out about your um, uh, dog aggression course that you run to all, all over the world. You do workshops, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep, yep. Uh, I do. You know, I have a bunch of uh, webinars on there as well as the master course, which is available year round. The conference that's upcoming, and um, the workshops I do uh, now that travels starting to open up again. Uh, I do have some online, some in person workshops coming up, which I'm excited to finally get back and see people in person and uh you know meet other trainers that's that's one of the best things about traveling and is getting to meet the trainers from around the world and people that work with animals because you learn so much you just learn so much from from uh the other people especially when you start going to different cultures you learn just so many different techniques and training ideas and and, the, and how they work with dogs and because it's different every every country you go to is going to be a little there's going to be differences some significant differences not only in the training but the culture so you learn a lot it's been it's been quite a ride sure and, and you also have your own podcast and that's called the bitey end of the dog is that correct the bitey end of the dog yep it's a podcast i started a couple of years ago at the, at the um urging of sarah mcmanaman who was on yeah. the muscle up project with us yeah. and uh no, she kept saying, you know, start a podcast. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, so I started recording it and it turned out to be actually a pretty good thing. So uh, second season just uh, finished up uh, a couple months ago. So looking forward to doing a season three next year, early next uh, year, 2022. Fantastic. And where can people find that podcast, uh, Mike? Are you on YouTube? Pretty much everywhere. Yeah. All the major, all the major uh, stream uh, podcast platforms. It's also available to stream through aggressivedog.com. So people want to just pull up the website they can go there and you have your own youtube channel and um, too which is I, I do but i don't i don't maintain it much you know i throw like some videos in there i'm terrible at like maintaining all of my social media stuff i just got on tiktok which i don't know if it's a good thing or a mistake but <laughs> i uh i've been branching out so yeah i do have a youtube channel i do like to put my longer form content there which has like tutorial videos on like how to acclimate a muzzle uh but it definitely don't have a lot of well a ton of content there at this point got you and, and you mentioned um, the muzzle up project with both both you and i are very passionate about and involved in and um mm-hmm. people can find that here and that is their website yep. and also find that on facebook and uh, too in the facebook group yes yep so there's a facebook page for muzzle up project and um it's packed with uh, great resources for anybody looking to decide what muzzle is best for their dog, why they would want to use a muzzle, um, how to act- 
acclimated correctly. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, we took it over from uh, Maureen Backman, who was generous to just hand it over and say, project up. And I said, sure. And and uh, it's still going strong. So, and, and Sarah's doing a great job getting it on Instagram. She just started a TikTok account for it. So, continuing to spread the good word about muzzles. Good stuff. Great. I'm sure we'll come on to that uh, later. Um, yeah. But for sure. So, so, I'd maybe like to start with um, you know, aggression is a widely misunderstood behavior in, in dogs. And I wonder if we could start by talking about some of the more common misconceptions, uh, Mike. So sure. maybe if we start off with things that I hear r- routinely, like naughty, um, dominant, uh, territorial, those types of, of labels, and I wonder if we could have a chat around about that, and yeah, and, and your thoughts on them as labels as opposed to you know the actual behaviours we see from our dogs. A topic that seems complicated. So when I was starting to really study aggression and work with aggressive dogs. Um, I found that there was a lot of confusion out there, a lot of complicated conversations because it was it was always kind of looked at as like the upper tier. Like you start off like training dogs to walk on a leash or house training, and then you start taking like dogs that maybe are reactive on leash, and then you go to the aggression cases. And for for whatever reason, it was always put on this pedestal, but it doesn't need to be. You know, some there's there's plenty of trainers that you can show the foundational aspects of training, and they can jump into working aggression cases provided they understand it. Because it's not much different other than obviously the safety and, and uh, the risk ramifications you have to consider. But uh, changing behavior is not that much different depending on the underlying motivation. And so um, aggression, I found, was the super complicated topic. Like everyone was just like confused and uh, there was all these different terms and all these different theories about it. And so whenever I see that, I, in my mind, I think, what is the best way we can simplify this for everybody? What's the what's the best way we can change all of this messaging into something that's much more simple? And I've learned a lot over the years to, uh, from folks like Dr. Susan Friedman and other people focusing on ABA and um, uh, really applying the applied behavior analysis lens to uh, working with aggression in dogs first and foremost. Of course, we're going to look at other sciences. We can talk about those later, but um, to really understand it, break it down into the most simple aspects, and which is the actual behavior. So aggression is behavior. If you're going to give it any kind of dis- description, aggression is behavior. It's That's all it is. It's um, uh, So when we start looking at the actual behaviors, you might see like growling, snarling, snapping, lunging, or biting. Those are observable behaviors that any almost anybody can agree upon. We can both look at a dog and say, that dog is growling or that dog is biting. And most people will be able to agree on that. What people aren't going to agree on is that dog's territorial or that dog's stubborn or that dog's dominant. And, oh, I think he's just being a little bit angry. Or they start to apply all of these personality traits or labels to the behavior. That's where it starts to get muddy. And then people start to say, well, what is what is uh, dominant? And then somebody will start to define dominance in one science and then another pseudoscience. And they get all these muddy definitions, which then brings out more confusion because then the arguments, oh, no, he's not dominant. He's actually, that's actually somewhat something else going on. It's an alpha behavior and all these other uh, misconceptions and fallacies that can happen. So if we look again, it's just behavior. And if we don't have to, you know, because we don't say, we don't usually say I have a voracious counter surfer, right? We can just say my dog's jumping up on the counter to get food behavior, right? Rather than saying, you know, he's a food stealer, he's a food thief. You know, if if people want to give their dogs a nickname, sure, but it's not going to help us help the dog if we don't know what the observable behaviors are, right? 
So it's like I say, food thief. What does that look like? What is it? What is a food thief? A dog jumping up on the counter or a dog jumping and stealing something off your plate or dog stealing food from another dog. And so labels are, are unhelpful in that regard. So uh, keep it simple is always my mantra. Sure. And it helps to operationalize those behaviors so that we actually identify mm-hmm. the behaviors that we're looking at. Um, and I guess that leads us on to the, you know, aggression is a normal behavior, right? Um, whilst we would rather they communicated in, in better ways, it is just communication, right? Absolutely. It's, it's again, uh, behavior uh, that's driven by some underlying motivation when it comes to aggressive behavior. And the dog is just communicating because of that underlying motivation. And people do it all the time. Um, I, well, every mammal does it all the time. You know, they are capable of an aggressive response or using behavior to communicate in a certain way that's uh, trying to satisfy their underlying motivation for that behavior. So uh, aggression is no different. It's just behavior. Um, and it's it's really unfortunate when when we don't expect dogs to show any aggressive behavior, or that's the expectation. You know, how dare that dog bark and lunge at me, or how dare my dog who I feed and give all the comfy dog beds to and bring toys to and feed and give all these treats to, um, how dare they bark and lunge at me or growl at me? It because it's, it kind of impacts us from an emotional aspect. But we have to remember again, you know, mammals or you know organisms don't survive wouldn't have evolved without protecting something that values them, whether it's their own life or resource. It's very normal behavior from an evolutionary standpoint for humans and dogs and mammals. So uh, we have to remember that. So when we see an aggressive response, we have to say, why is my dog doing this? You know, instead of saying, how dare my dog do this, right? It's it's yeah, communication. Sure, sure. And uh, I wonder if you could potentially take us through what I think is a very important infographic, which is a ladder of aggression. Um, and it allows us to be able to sure. visualize the steps. And in some of the cases I work on, some owners are inadvertently teaching their dogs to escalate quick and fast through the ladder of aggression, mainly because they don't necessarily know what they're looking at, um, but, but, but also they are potentially missing key steps in the ladder of aggression and inadvertently teaching them to escalate. And I think what Shirag Patel came up with a lovely line where he said, you know, if we could listen to our dog's whispers, they wouldn't need to shout at us. I think that's just a lovely uh, way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Let me bring that up on, on the screen. If you don't mind um, just chatting us through this, Mike, in terms of a ladder of aggression. Yeah, so if I'm not mistaken, I, and I was actually uh, talking about this yesterday on another interview, was uh, this was Kendall Shepard, right, is the uh, is the originator of this, if I want to make sure I'm giving the right credit. Um, and it, it's, it's a great schematic in that it allows people to see that there are subtle signs. So most people can recognize what's in the red there, the growling, the snapping, and the biting. Uh, and then some people can recognize some of the yellow RNG steps there, but a lot of us or a lot of um, uh, people that first get bitten or are, are seeing aggressive behavior, they don't recognize what's in the green there. So it's very helpful to uh, help people understand that there are precursors for aggressive responses. If we start to recognize those, we can cut, the, cut it off before you get to the red zone or even the orange zone. Stop what you're doing reassess what you're doing to actually see those behaviors occur so the dog doesn't feel the need to communicate in the orange or red levels. Um, so that's the, the beauty of the scale. Um, and I, I see that this is actually a different schematic, which is different than the ones I've seen before. Previously, it was an actual ladder, which I think was getting uh, adding a little bit of confusion to some people because they were saying that, okay, the dog is going to always take those steps. Because when you think of climbing a ladder, you're not thinking of like as a, just jumping up three rungs. You're taking each step deliberately. So it's a little different in the with dogs. Sometimes they can go from that 
bottom green step up to an orange step, and sometimes from a green step to a red step, or jump in between. So they might come down the ladder and then back up. So it's important to remember there is some fluidity to it. Um, so it's not just a, all, we, all dogs are going to go from the yawning to the turning away and gradually go through each step. Uh, it can happen, but a lot of dogs will sometimes skip steps. But it's such a great schematic because, it again, it commute. It allows uh, people to see that there are other communications. There's precursors. And then, then when you really start looking, you can see even more subtle precursors. So even if, if we start to, I don't know what color would go before green, blue, or I don't know. <laughs> you could see even other small uh, micro signals when you start really looking at aggressive behavior, uh, a nostril flare, a, uh, a lumpy whisker bed, um, a breath hold, a change in respiration, some of those things that you start to really notice before the dogs uh, start to escalate. And sometimes it's valuable information to see those little micro signals too, because some dogs do go from the blue or green zone up to the red zone so quickly. Uh, it's That's why I want those little pieces of information. So I can say, oh, I'm getting a little too close or I'm moving too quickly or whatever I'm doing might uh, escalate to a bite. So um, yeah, I love all of these different uh, tools for communicating that dogs are giving us plenty of signals before the actual bites. And I know some dogs may have learned through their experience that some of these early warning signs are ineffective and deemed to be ineffective, so may stop using them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if they're punished. Um, I've had plenty of cases where, uh, you know, the dog was growling or lip curling or showing other signals, and they get punished for that. So they, they the owner does something or is taught to do something or a trainer comes in and does something to suppress that or punish out that signal. And what happens is dogs are well, growling doesn't work because nobody's paying attention to me. Nobody's listening to me when I growl. So I guess I'll have to just jump to biting because that usually works, right? People don't stick around um, when a dog is biting. And certainly people will often miss the chance to even punish the dog if they're already latched onto their arm. So biting works pretty well for most dogs. Uh, to get their point across and it's highly reinforcing highly reinforcing for the dog because um it's, it's safety comes first for the dog for any animal again safety trumps everything else and so if they get what they're looking for which is safety or uh, getting away from the threatening stimulus that's going to be so reinforcing more so than any treat or anything else you can give at that time so it's important again if we recognize those underlying signals those precursors and we avoid having to worry about inadvertently reinforcing that aggressive response. Sure. And, and that's why aggression persists in our companion animals. It's, it's effective. It works every time. If a dog growls, lunges, snaps, even bites, um, it will work for them in terms of achieving the goal of that behavior. I think when we're assessing any aggressive behavior, we have to appreciate that that behavior has function for that dog. It has an evolutionary benefit, right? And if... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, if it works for them, then it will likely reinforce it for that particular individual dog, right? Absolutely. Um, we could talk about the underlying emotional responses too, because there's there's some confusion about that as well. I've seen um, sometimes in the, the discussion groups that you know all all aggression is based in fear, um, and that's unfortunately inaccurate because it's yes, there's uh, plenty of aggression is motivated by motivated by fear the dog is fearful of a particular stimulus they just want that thing to go away so they use aggression to make it go away um, that's probably the most common cause of uh, an aggressive response in a dog but there's other underlying motivations that can come into play anxiety stress arousal frustration pain 
um, or even euphoria or fun. It can be fun for some dogs because we've actually purpose bred them, selected for them to do certain tasks like aggressive responses towards threats to the property or threats to their owner. So those dogs aren't uh, coming from a motivation of fear. They're like, this is my job. I'll do this all day long. Bring it on. And they're having a good time displaying aggressive behavior. So it's important if we're going to uh, craft the appropriate behavior change strategy, we do have to have some idea of the un underlying emotional response and what we need to change there uh, because we have to adapt our, our behavior change strategies based on that underlying motivation. Uh, the nice thing is though, most of the time it is fear and, and it's, it is, uh, it's hard to screw it up <laughs> if, if you're doing the same techniques with dogs that are aggressive. The, the caveat is the dogs that are having fun, the, the methods are gonna differ quite a bit between fearful dogs and the dogs that we purposely, purposely selected for that. Sure, and, and that does lead me into, there was a, it's a great point about the different motivations for aggression. And with fear, we see that motivation to increase distance away from you know the target, you know, away from the trigger. Um, and, and with frustration, it's more a motivation of decreasing distance to get to that target. But that frustration mm -hmm. can lead very quickly into tapping into the rage anger system of the brain. And anyone who wants to look into that looks into the Yak Panset YouTube, um, which is fantastic on emotions. And, and that difference in motivation will, will I guess, result in different types of aggression, um, I, I suppose, from that point of view. But again, um, deemed to be normal from the dog's point of view, we label it sometimes as being aberrant or problem behavior. But from the dog's perspective, it's always normal, right? Exactly. And, and you said it, you, you, you've made a good point there, you know, that the function of the behavior is to increase distance from the stimulus. Most aggressive behavior is used to increase distance from threat. That's probably the most simplest term or definition you can give to aggression. This, to, the, the, the job is to uh, increase distance from the stimulus. There are exceptions where it is to decrease distance from the stimulus. And in those exceptions, we wouldn't necessarily put it in the same category as aggression. So predation, for instance. Uh, the animal that the dog is chasing after would think it's aggressive, but uh, the purpose, the intent isn't fueled by an uh, in increasing distance. It's The goal is actually to decrease distance. So when a dog is chasing after a squirrel, for instance, different things are happening up there from, from a neurochemical aspect and what we would define as an aggressive response. So like terms like predatory aggression, that's a perfect example of a misnomer. Um, again, depending on which lens you're looking through, it's, you know, some sciences will actually still use the term predatory aggression, but I, I tend to lean away from that because it's, it's mud, muddying two different motivations at the same time. So predatory, the goal is to decrease distance. Predation is food acquisition or getting closer to something. And aggression is used again to increase distance. So how can you have both at the same time? And when you really look at the behaviors, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to be a good predator if you're using aggressive behavior like barking, lunging, <laughs> snarling, snapping. Most prey is not going to stick around when they see that. Predation is very stocky, very quiet, very silent. It's a much different set of behaviors. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's at the most simplest term, we're going to look at increasing distance most of the time. It's such an interesting aspect of it, isn't it? The difference between predation and, and aggression. It's not something I would uh, normally... Uh, used in the same sentence because of those, I guess, genetic behaviours, you know, those modal action patterns which are genetic within our dogs and which could be deemed, again, to be perfectly normal. But as you say, a prey is not going to hang around if a dog's barking and lunging at them, apart from one potential breed, which I which I researched, which was a Finnish Spitz, 
kind of bar pointer, um, which was a very interesting um, behaviour. But, but those behaviours are modal action patterns, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, right? The, the initial, the, the predatory motor sequence, right? That pattern, all dogs have it. And we've truncated it and we've hypertrophied it in some cases. And, uh, you know, we've asked the dogs to uh, intensify certain responses in that predatory motor sequence. And when you look at the predatory motor sequence, again, predation historically was for food acquisition or decreasing distance. But we as humans have tinkered enough now it can be used as distance increasing behaviors. And dogs also use it in the context of in increasing distance. So it gets, it gets um, interesting when you start looking through the ethology lens and you know adding in the predatory motor sequence as part of the discussion. But again, to keep it simple, Distance increasing behaviors is usually the goal. So, so, so when um, when you're you know you're called into an aggression case, you know you're 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 going into it. What what measures are you looking to put in place from a safety prevention and management point of view? Can you give us some examples of that, mate? Yeah, it's it's really the first thing I focus on. Any kind of case that you know the flow of my aggression cases before I talk about any behavior change or training or anything like that. The first thing I talk to the client about is safety and management because it's the most important aspect, especially in aggression cases because the stakes are often high and the ramifications are much more severe for dogs that bite than dogs that jump on the counter. Right. So, yeah, safety and management is crucial in aggression cases. Um, and that yeah, there's uh, many, many things we could talk about, but typically it's it, uh, dependent on the dog's environment, what the dog's going to be most comfortable with and what's doable for the humans in their environment. So um, let's let's use an example, a dog that uh, barks or, you know, barks and lunges at strangers that enter the home. What's the management going to set up and it looks like there? Uh, usually I'm looking at two layers of safety. So two things in between the front door and the dog just because things fall and dogs can jump over gates and stuff like that so i like to have two layers so we might be using something like baby gates or uh the dog on a leash or if the dog has a bite history we might look at a muzzle or if it's a young dog that doesn't have a bite history but is um i suspect might have a bite history if we don't use a muzzle we'll use a muzzle um crate in another room put the dog in the backyard, shut the sliding door, depending on the setup and what the dog is most comfortable with. And, and again, what's doable. Some people don't have a backyard, so can we put the dog in another room? Is the dog even going to be comfortable with anybody in the home, even if it's behind in a crate and behind a shut door, behind a steel wall, behind a, you know, and it's, if it's not comfortable for the dog, then we have to adjust the environment. We can't have that stranger there because we're going to be making things worse. So, um, it's look at the environment first and then of course make sure the dog is very comfortable and the client has to be able to do it as well first and foremost if the client can't carry out the safety and management aspect it's often not going to bode well for the behavior change aspect right that transitions lovely into a question i was going to ask about entering properties as a, as a trainer and behaviorist and the risks associated to that not just from, from the dog's point of view but your own personal safety and, and i wonder there will be circumstances potentially where you wouldn't want to go into a property, you'd want to meet that dog outside to do an assessment on, on the potential risk to yourself. Is that fair? Yeah. It's, uh, so if I'm doing an assessment on a dog and I'm working with a dog for the first time, I typically like to meet them outside rather than inside the home um, just because you're going to have more distance. Um, you have to do that safely, though, because sometimes if the dog has a bite history, um, even if you put safety layers in place, you're still increasing the, the risk 
part of it a little bit because you're working outside. So the dog's not as contained unless they have like a nice fenced in yard you can work in. But if you're going to like say meet in the front yard and there's no fence or anything protecting the general public, you know, you have to be careful because you never know when a kid could be riding by on a bike or uh, some other aspects. So uh, if you're, if you are going to meet outside, make sure things, you have those layers of safety in place and you're, you're set up correctly because uh, it could, very. If you're in this a big city, you have no yard, maybe, and you have very limited options and where you can meet the dogs. You might uh, choose to meet at a location where you know you can securely uh, have control of that environment. If it's a fenced-in like a ball field area that you could put a lock on, that's off hours or something like that, or rent a space or something like that. Sometimes it's you have to get creative about your setups, especially in the severe bite cases. You got to be really careful because you're. You're under, at least in the United States, you're going to be under care, custody, and control of the situation, which pushes you at a significant higher risk of risk of liability because you're the person uh, kind of overseeing the whole operation there. And if somebody gets bitten, they're going to come after you, <laughs> you and the owner. Uh, but it's it's you have to be careful with those. It is a risky business working aggression cases. I think there's statistics out where there's a higher level of, of, of bites delivered under those types of cases. So you do put yourself under an element of risk when you do take on an aggression case. And I guess what advice would you give to people who are thinking about moving into specialised aggression or taking on their first aggression cases? What sort of advice would you give me? I think it's, um, you know, aggression cases have always been like, I don't know why, but they've always been like kind of looked up as, as like the sex, the sexy part of the industry. Like it's like, you know, you're, you're really made it when you start taking aggression cases. But I think, you know, I, I, I prefer we get away from that because I think, like I said before, it doesn't, you know, people are like, oh, you got to have 10 years of experience before you take, start working aggression cases. I don't think that's the case. I do think you shouldn't take your first case as an aggression case, but I think uh, it doesn't take as much foundational training as people are, you know, throwing at it right now. So, um, yes, you need to know how to understand behavior. Yes, you need to know how to get behavior on a dog, but you'll, but most of it is really falling down to being good at the safety and management understanding behavior change in aggression cases, but really it's all about the people, you know? So before you jump into aggression cases, ask yourself, do you love people? Do you love working with people? I mean, you really have to love working with people. Do you love working with people that are going to be emotional, that are going to be looking for empathy, your empathy and your understanding in their case. That's the first, first thing I always tell people because sometimes you don't even see the dog. You spend two hours talking with the client. You might even see the dog because there's they're such a high, high level of aggression or you can't get anywhere near close to the dog or you may choose not to even do your assessment during that first session because you're talking to the client, helping them through their individual journey. So um, that's a big part of it that I remind all my students. It's like, you got to love working with the people. You have to be uh, understanding and, and have that empathetic, be able to... Uh, be empathetic in your cases, because that's so important to uh, making a connection and to be successful. The dog stuff, again, it's it's important to know, but that stuff comes easy. That's because uh, you're going to see the same thing over and over and over. Just like a specialist that sees, like you know, like a foot specialist, you know, they're only going to see so many different problems with the, the foot. They don't have to worry about ankle up on as far as a specialist because they're concentrating on the foot. So aggression cases, you're concentrating on a, a, a small percentage of the all the behavior problems that can happen with dogs out there. And you just get good at it because it's the same thing over and over and over. There's only so many ways you can approach a dog that resource guard the food ball, right? It's pretty much almost the same thing with minor adjustments every time. What's going to be different is the people. 
you're going to get one client that their dog guards the food bowl and they are just emotionally just completely drained and they're just done with their dog. And then you have another client that's going to be like, oh, I totally do this. Let's do this. Show me what to do. And it's great. And so same, you could have the same dog and just put in two different homes. It's going to be two different cases. Right. And the people are more available then um, than, than the dogs themselves. As you say, you see the same behaviors routinely within dogs, but the variable is the environment and, and the people and the approach in terms of how they deal with them. And that relates back to that point about the lens of how they view those issues through. That does give you some insight, doesn't it? And I was going to ask you that, do you feel that with lockdown and the restrictions, have you moved to more remote consults and have you felt that's been a benefit? Um, so that you're not in those positions potentially. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've really learned about the benefits of online consultations over the last couple of years. You can imagine, if like five years ago, if you said to somebody, oh, "I'll train your dog online," we're like, "What are you talking about?" They're just. It's so amazing the technology that's come that's helped us learn and help. You know, one of the nice things for me is I can help clients from all over the world. So you can help clients that don't have a trainer nearby them or. Uh, anybody that works with aggression cases. So that's one of the nice things. But the other nice thing is that for the first consult in an aggression case, you're not there stressing the dog out, right? So that you can you can get all the information. You have full attention of the client. They're going to be able to relay all this information without them worrying about what their dog is doing and what without you having to worry about what the dog is doing and without the dog having to worry about you, what you're doing. So it's beneficial to everybody uh, during that first consult because you can, it's most, most of the time, the first consult is a lot of information gathering and a lot of uh, just giving initial recommendations like safety and management and uh, instructions on things like how to acclimate a muzzle or whatever else you're going to be doing in the case. So, and then you get the beauty of technology with video, right? It's just, it's so, so helpful. Um, people are getting much more comfortable now taking video. Before, it was a little bit of like, you had to kind of like, just take, get some video from me, just take your cell phone out, and people really shy and wouldn't want to do it. Now, people are so much more used to it. And then they send your video through uh, a YouTube unlisted link or a Dropbox file or something like that. And you're able to go and watch what they're doing in slow motion. And so if you put things in slow motion, you're able to break things down so much better for both yourself and your clients. Because you can miss things if you're in person, if you're watching it live and in real time, sometimes you miss stuff. When you go back and watch it and you're like, oh, oh, and then you play it back and then then you could show your client that same thing. Like, oh, check it out. This is where your dog, you know, uh, there's a little bit of a subtle twitch or, you know, lip lick, or you can point out those little things. And that's, um, it goes such a long way from an educational standpoint. Think about like a sports coach, right? If you're teaching your, your athletes something, then what do you do? You go back and watch the videos. The coaches go back in the locker room or then they're where and they, they are. And they, they go back and actually watch the footage back from the game or the matches or whatever and play it in real time. They circle like, here's, you know, where you're off here. Your elbow wasn't high enough here or something. You can go back and circle all those things. So um, side tip for you trainers watching into get Loom, L-O-O-M. It's this great software. It's sort of like Screencast-O-Matic, but Loom is, um, it allows you to, uh, let's say your client sends you a video, just put it up on your screen, your computer, and you can play it and just do a screen record and you can talk over the video or you can even put your own face like we are, Jim and I are here now. You don't have to, you can just talk over the video and you can give your clients feedback. Talk about time saver, time saving when you go in, um, instead of typing up behavior reports that take you know, hours each night, you can just record a loom video. Five minutes is all it takes and be like, oh, this looks great here. And you can circle things on the video and check this out and maybe make this adjustment. And then it saves it, right? And then you just send the client the link. 
So you don't have to upload it to YouTube and like do extra work. It saves the video automatically. You just send the client the private link. Next thing you know, they've got the lesson planner when it only took you like five minutes to do. So um, yeah, I've been using that a lot lately. And, uh, let me just, yes, Loom. There, yeah, let me just bring it off, the, uh, cutting off a little bit. Let me just bring that yeah, up. It's, it's one of the it's work. one of the many programs out there. I like it. It's just so it's really easy to use. I use a Mac, just so you guys know, but um, it is so much easier using that. Um, great. And it's like yeah, I don't know, ten bucks. Ten bucks. I forget what it's like. It's cheap. It's like ten bucks a month or something like that. Fantastic. That's a great tip for sure. For sure. And are you doing your reports in that style now, as opposed to? Kind of manually punching out a behavior report which yeah i don't do i don't do behavior reports every i i'll show you here okay. so you guys can see like what my this is my intake form so like i use something like this with my own notes so like when i'm working with clients i'm still old-fashioned pen and paper for my own notes because i'm just um i haven't figured out a way to type fast enough i'm just fast with shorthand and i've got my own abbreviations i've learned for myself over the years so um, but I, so I keep my own records. I want everybody to make sure they're keeping solid records in your aggression cases, but also, um, you can, uh, ditch the behavior reports. So I don't do behavior reports anymore for clients unless they request it, or unless I'm working with a veterinarian or if it's a court case or something like that. Uh, but most of the time I'm just recording a video. It's the fastest way to get information to most of my clients, either, either with them in person, you know, videoing me or me doing a loom video for them um, i can get out a what, what would take me an hour to type up in a five minute video just just basically talking about what i talked about for two hours with the client i just summarize it in five minutes that's super that's such a great tip it's, it's definitely one of the more laborious uh, aspects of, of working I, on cases yeah. is having to do best thing i have ever done yeah and i, and I always question what the client themselves gets from a very thorough behavior report where they're reading through a couple of thousand words of, of you know, text as opposed to that kind of, you know, visual element of, of, of sort of going through it. Yes. You know, it's funny too. I think it was Katina Jones. Uh, she's a really great uh, dog and cat behavior consultant. I think she's the one that put in, uh, what do they call those like hidden things in movies? And um, uh, There's a nickname for the things that, uh, somebody help me out here in the comments. With little... Uh, that knows that, uh, yeah. Feel free to pop up. I forgot what they're called. Little tidbits of information that you only see uh, eggs or whatever. What do they call them? Anyways, <laughs> uh, she put in her behavior reports just to see how many people would read them. She was she put in there. If you get to this point, uh, send me this, and it was 50, something like fifty dollars off the consult. If you get this and read this, you'll get fifty dollars off the consult, and nobody took advantage of it. <laughs> so it tells you something that most people aren't reading the behavior reports. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's why I love video because even if they don't watch, I can tell when they watch the video because the boom will tell me if they've watched it. So that, that's excellent. And that's really good information. Easter egg. Is that what they call it? Easter egg. Yeah, 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 Easter up there. yeah yes, yeah. that's it. Thank you guys. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot. A couple of people popping up there. Yeah. It was called something. I thanks, Julian, for the, for that. <laughs> I've never heard of that. So, um, yeah. so that's new to me. But that is such a good point. And, and I've always questioned whether it was worthwhile doing huge behavior reports, unless there was a, a requirement mm -hmm. to do so. You're working with a vet or there's legal aspects to what, you, what yeah. you're doing um, where there may be a requirement to do a full, full behavior report. But I never thought about them. Yeah, yeah. You guys are more official out there. <laughs> Your side of the pile, like UK, Scotland. There's definitely, a, I feel, more um, 
formality in the communication between trainers and sales. I definitely see that. So I could, I would check before you ditch the behavior reports what the ramifications are on the requirements are for your certifications and things like that. But um, yeah. right off my tongue, you do that right off my tongue, and there will be clinical behaviorists that will have to do this as part of the accreditation, yeah. which this maybe yeah. doesn't apply to. But I agree, we want to make it as interactive and productive for the client um, in terms of ease of ingesting that type of information and identifying the report which can bombard them with lots of jargon lots of technical information and I've never really I've always wondered how much they got back from that so so yeah yeah um, so there's another area I wanted to talk about um, and, and we've talked about the safety and prevention and um, management aspects of, of cases and, and what I wanted to talk about was about the thresholds and how we make that dog potentially feel safe in their environment I watched a fantastic video from Suzanne Claudier um, about making dogs feel safe. And the point being, if they don't feel safe, desensitization and counter conditioning just won't work. It will be ineffective if the dog doesn't feel safe. And, and we, we achieve that level of safety through keeping them under threshold, right? Yeah, so I think um, threshold is an interesting term because it's it's sort of a dog training uh, term. And, and, and how it's uh, been used over the years. Because threshold, depending again, which science you're looking at, is gonna have a different de- different definitions. Typically in the dog training world, we're looking at threshold as the point at which the dog is um, experiencing stress from the particular trigger. And that's going to display itself in the body language and the dog's behavior. So we start to see you know, things like tongue flicks, whale eye, uh, all the way and up through the typical stress signals, all the way and up to the response. We're looking at a dog that's over threshold, and we always want to be working under threshold when it comes to the counter conditioning aspects. Um, there are some exceptions to that, though, so I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, ideally, for dogs to be in, a, in the state that we want them to to learn and to have a, a, the experience we want is a low stress experience around that particular stimulus. We've got to control the variables that's going to help them keep them on the threshold. Um, the, the two major variables that we always talk about are distance and intensity for, of the stimulus. So we need distance. Distance is your friend, as um, many trainers have said, including Grisha Stewart. And um, the that's important, one, one important part. And then, of course, the intensity. So the amount of distance you have from something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the same distance all the time from all dogs. It could be what that other dog is doing. That other dog could be barking and lunging at the dog we're working with. We're going to need a lot more distance. So that's the intensity of the stimulus. But one that doesn't get talked about as much is the time. And time is the amount of exposure to a stimulus. That can go in either direction. Too much time, even if the dog seems under threshold, they're relaxed, they're kind of just noticing stimulus. And we expose the dog to the stimulus for um, uh, too long of a duration. Sometimes even just the exposure at an under threshold level can be too intense and too long. Uh, it's, uh, the analogy I use sometimes is like uh, you leave a gas stove on in one room and you've got a candle lit in the other room. Eventually, that gas is going to catch up to that candle and you're going to get the explosion. It's similar to with dogs. You don't see necessarily other triggers stacking on. You don't see other stressors in the environment. It's just time. Time is the uh, factor that's going to potentially put the dog over threshold. And on the other hand, sometimes time can be a valuable asset. So we put a dog in uh, an environment where they're again under threshold, but they're nervous and we're like, oh, we've got to increase distance or we've got to decrease the intensity of the stimulus. That's true, but sometimes you don't have that luxury. I worked with a dog the other day. The dog was very nervous about getting out of the car. Uh, We were working in this park area. 
tons of space, ton, like one of the best places I can work because there's just hundreds and hundreds of meters in every direction without any distractions. And there's also uh, very low intensity stimuli. So people that are kind of walking around and, and, you know, so it wasn't a very intense environment. But this dog was very nervous just from the start. And I said, well, don't get the dog out yet. Let's just give it time. Sure enough, that difference between the first 30 seconds where we might have said, we're, we're on a time crunch. We only have an hour session. Let's get the dog out of the car uh, versus giving the dog time between 30 seconds to let's give, let's give it a few minutes just to we'll leave the doors open. You got the leash on. Don't worry. The dog's not going anywhere. You got, but just let the dog investigate the environment. So we allowed that to happen. Just an extra few minutes of the dog poking his head out, checking things out. And after that, the tail started to come up. The dog started sniffing around. And next thing you know, the dog hops out of the car. And then we go and give the dog more time, let the dog sniff the grass, no training pressure or anything like that. And that time during that session was the differentiator between the threshold and not. Because if we pulled that dog out of the car in the first 30 seconds, he would have been over threshold, which would have been detrimental to our behavior plan. So so those that's time is a big factor. Now there's um there is a misconception that we always have to work dogs under threshold because classical conditioning can still work even if the dog is displaying barking, lunging, snapping behaviors. We don't want to do that because that's putting the dog in a state of stress that we don't want. However, it can still work. So a perfect example is the dogs I work with that have issues with strangers coming on the property. First thing I do as I'm walking in, I'm tossing treats to them as they're barking and lunging at me with protected contact. So they might be behind a fence um, on, on with a owner holding the leash or back tie or muzzled. And I'm just trying to establish a relationship and help that dog feel safe about me. And I'm tossing treats at them. And a lot of people are like, aren't you reinforcing that behavior? And the, the, the most of the time, the answer is no, you're working on the underlying emotional response. I want that dog to feel better about me. So I'm tossing treats at the dog. Um, and doing something like Suzanne Clothier would do, treat, toss, toss behind the dog, although treat and retreat is under threshold. Um, sometimes we're working over threshold, so it's not technically treat and retreat, but we're tossing treats to the dog. Dog's starting to feel safer. Nine times out of 10, the dog's be like, this person's not so bad after all. And you change the behavior. So it's, you're, and the dog was over threshold. So it's not, I'm, it's not like if the dog's over threshold, we're going to, the world's going to crumble. <laughs> It's our goal, though, to to be um, the dog's you know advocate and make sure they're comfortable with the situation as much as possible. Sometimes we we can't always do that depending on the environment. So I still want to reiterate: still toss those treats, right? <laughs> you know, do damage control, but still toss the treats because most of the time you're not going to do anything bad. Even if the dog doesn't take the treats, it's still you're at least attempting to help the dog feel better. It's such a it's such an important point, and it was one that took me up by looking my head round about rewarding a potential undesirable behaviour just to get the emotional response, just to get that pleasant emotion, and changing the behaviour by changing the underlying emotional response is just such a wonderful way of coming at it. it took me up by looking my head round that initially, I must admit, because I felt the same. Are we not just rewarding the undesirable behaviour? When you change the emotion, you change the behaviour as a consequence, right? Yes. Yes. And for some dogs, though, they can't be under threshold anyway. There are a subset of dogs. Yep. And, and in I work in rescue. A lot of dogs are coming through with chronic stress. The environment is hostile. Their antecedents leading up to where they're at is, is telling them that this is a hostile environment. They can't be under threshold. So they're difficult to work with, aren't they, to keep under threshold, particularly in a city, for example, like London or, you know, I don't love city. 
can be tough on those dogs, can't it? Yeah, the number one question I get at my seminars and workshops when I'm talking or talking about tossing treats or using counter conditioning, the the number one question that almost always comes after that is, what about dogs that don't take treats when we're working with them? Almost like clockwork. So, um, and that's a very common issue. Dogs that don't take, take treats. So you can walk, you're in a shelter environment or you're working with a dog's a client's dog and you're tossing treats, the dog's not taking treats or the client's trying to give the dog treats, the dog's not taking treats. Um, that's telling telling us a lot. That's information, of course, that the dog is so stressed and they're not feeling safe that they're not taking treats. So we have to make adjustments. Um, the adjustments you can make, uh, first and foremost, is from the holistic level, meaning let's make sure that we're doing everything we can to make this dog's life better in general. So first, not necessarily focusing on that actual context or that environment. Let's just make sure everything, all the dogs are being met, being met from a health perspective. You know, uh, is there any underlying health issues that we have to impact? Is the dog getting enough enrichment? Is the dog, and we're removing as many stressors as possible from this dog's life uh, in their daily environment? Because there's most dogs aren't going to be over threshold all day long because they have to sleep, you know, and so you're going to be able to create an environment at some points where the dog's going to have that rest, that downtime, be able to de stress and not be exposed to stressors. So then comes the time when you actually are going to, again, re replicate the trigger or the, the, the antecedent in the environment or the antecedent arrangement at some point because we're trying to help this dog with their issues. So then we have to ask our question, what's our environmental conditions? What is, what is um, uh, still uh, pushing this dog over threshold? What can we modify there? Can it be distance? Can it be intensity and stimulus? Can it be the time that we're focusing with the dog? Can we modify any of those things? Can we change the environment so we can uh, get those things? Now, there's environments we can't do that in. We have dogs in the city. There's no options. They, as soon as they're out of their front door, it's like an explosion of stimuli. And so some of those dogs can benefit from other um, uh, ancillary measures. So you might look at uh, potentially medication, behavior medication for those dogs that can help them cope with those, uh, with the environment in general from a uh, sort of a global standpoint, so it'd be daily dosing medication, or you might look at situational meds where the dog's like, okay, we're going to go train for this hour. So we're going to give you this uh, med to help you out before you, we go train for that hour. Um, certainly handling techniques are very helpful in the city. So a lot of my time spent with clients with dogs that are, uh, it's very difficult to control the environment like that. It's focused on handling, really good handling skills, uh, teaching the client how to uh, use things like distracting techniques where, the, where they're keeping the dogs focused on them with food to get them past the trigger, using environmental blocking techniques like the getting behind a car or somewhere where the dog can't see the other dog coming, good leash handling skills so they're not tightening up the leash every time the dog sees something uh, from, you know, because tight spaces like a city, sometimes you are tightening up the leash because we want to keep the dog away from whatever it is, but that actually uh, can... Uh, uh, make things worse because we're restricting the flight option. We can drive frustration into the behavior. So it's it's like defensive driving in the city. So it's much different than driving out in the countryside. It's, if you're living with a dog in the city, it's like you're driving a car in the city. It's a much different level of handling and uh, and all that. So uh, is, are you still able to hear me, Jim? So I, uh -huh. I can hear you. Yeah, I okay. think we had a comment. Right. We lost yeah. sound there just for a second. Okay. If any in the comments could just pop Hopefully up. Hopefully it's still good. Okay, is that the other thing to look at too is what is really valuable for that dog. Sometimes we're concentrating on food reinforcers, 
and maybe we just haven't found the right food reinforcer in that particular situation. Or if you really want to look at a, uh, an advanced t- topic is to determine if that food's been poisoned. And what that means is the dogs learned that, let's say, uh, cheese out on a walk predicts something bad's about to happen because the owner's constantly using it to lure the dog or they're presenting the cheese before the dog sees the scary thing. If you do that enough time, the dog's going to be like, this is, um, uh, you know, cheese is going to predict something bad's about to happen. So uh, it's important to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, looks like the sound's good. Great. So, uh, you know, how you use food and what food you're using is really important as well. So evaluating that. And sometimes the dog doesn't want food. Maybe they want play. Maybe they want social time with the owner. Maybe they want to play with a toy. Maybe they want distance. And so you can use those, uh, what the dog is actually going to find motivating and reinforcing instead of food for some of those cases. So there's a lot of options for dogs that don't take food. Um, and and the, probably the easiest one to do is just increase distance. So let's for, say, for instance, I'm throwing treats at the dog. I go to the property and I'm throwing treats at the dog. Dog's not taking treats. I'll say, okay, put your dog away. I've seen enough. What you're going to do is I'm going to increase distance. So I'll start at the other end of your property. Dog's going to see me, but you as the client are going to be feeding treats. So then the dog is most likely going to take treats because you've got, you've got the distance now. And my intensity would be low. I'll just kind of stand there and kind of not make eye contact or try to interact with the dog. So I'm decreasing the intensity of the stimulus. And now the client's able to do the counter conditioning from their distance. So the dog sees me and they're marking and reinforcing or whatever plan you have in place. And the dog's going to take food there. So that's probably the easiest fix and one that that's going to work in most of your cases for dogs that aren't taking food. Yeah, great information. And, and there's a lot of factors to that, isn't there, where a dog may be able to deal with a stimulus or trigger in isolation. But then when you factor in other environmental distractions, that can all accumulate and to mm-hmm. cause that dog to be over threshold faster. Yeah. And, and we call that yep. trigger stack, right, Mike? Yeah, trigger stacking, stress stacking is another term for it. And it's that's another great schematic there. It shows just what can happen when we start adding in additional stressors. You know, so it's it's important to be aware of it. And a good good trainer consultant is going to help cl- be able to help clients like navigate that and understand that because sometimes it's hard to pay attention to all that when it's all going on at the same time, right? So the client's just trying to keep a track of where their leash and treat is, and then the dog's like going over threshold or having stressful moments with other things like kids on skateboards or other dogs and the client might miss that and so it, it really helps us uh, to help them when they can start to get educated on what to look for in those in those kind of trigger or, or stress stacking moments i kind of like equate it more more so to a soup than to a stack because unfortunately once you add stressors into a dog's uh, environment then it's hard to just pull uh, pull them off like Jenga blocks, right? It's kind of just mixed into this big soupy mess once we start throwing in stressors. So sometimes we got to let that soup kind of drain out and cool uh, before we can continue working with them. And that relates to the importance of decompression, right? If a dog has yeah. a you know, chronic chronic mm-hmm. state of stress and that will have effect physiologically on that dog, we have to work to decompress them first of all so they're in a receptive state to training, right? And we do that through enrichment uh, primarily and, and uh, making that dog feel, feel safe. And I think that relates back to your other point about the great example of coming out of the car and actually just doing nothing. And sometimes that's quite a hard concept for a trainer because we're employed to do something. But in some aspects for, for you know, in, in, in some realms, you want to just come out and do nothing, right? And just let them observe the world and realize that it's not a hostile place to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, you make such a good point there, Jim. It's like, 
like when somebody hires us, they want us to do all these things. They think we're going to just be doing things the whole session. And it's, it's a tough sell sometimes. You go, all right, we're going to go to the park and we're just going to sit and watch the world for an hour. Then you're going to pay me for that. <laughs> and it's just, but sometimes it's so important. That's what we're paid for is to, to understand what the dog needs. Sometimes desensitization, just straight desensitization or habituation in some cases is what's going to help the dog. They don't, they don't care about food. They don't care about play. They just want to investigate the environment at a safe distance and feel safe about it and get acclimated to it. That can go such a long way. And so they don't have the distraction of food or all these other activities. Some dogs benefit more from that. So it's okay to, uh, you know, it's, I think it's important. We give permission to, for trainers. It's okay to just literally do nothing sometimes, provided you can explain it to the client why it's working. Right. So there's that people part because some people are like, ha, oh, what are we doing? I'm like, why are we doing anything? And you have to sometimes be good at explaining why you might not do anything. Uh, so there again, there again goes the, the people side of the equation, right? Yeah. If it was your dog, it'd be easy. But if it's, if it's the client's dog, you have to explain why that's working. And Joanne making that very valuable point there that it less is more yeah. in, in some cases. And it's just mm-hmm. our nature and want to help. We sometimes do too much uh, too soon with the best of intentions, but sometimes just letting them desensitize, letting them acclimatize is uh, sometimes just as effective, if not more. So, so I wonder if we could uh, talk through the approach in terms of behavior cases from, uh, from an ethical standpoint too, because it's important that we approach behavior cases with a robust ethical structure. And, and I love uh, Susan Friedman's, I'm sure you'll agree with this, uh, you certainly wouldn't disagree that uh, our most positive, least intrusive method is by far the, the best way of viewing an ethical structure as your bumper lanes, your guide. And I wonder if you could just chat us through this graphic, Michael, which I'm sure you'll know well. Yeah, so that's the humane hierarchy. It takes you through uh, not only the quadrants, but the initial uh, things we want to do before we start moving towards any kind of punishers. Um, And so obviously the things I was talking about before is addressing the uh, underlying factors that could impact behavior. So uh, on the the schematic here, we see wellness, nutrition. So especially with aggression cases, the first thing you're going to look at is making sure underlying health issues are ruled out and addressed before you go to anything else. Because if, if the dog's not feeling well, there's only so much behavior change you can make, especially for dogs that are in pain. And um, we're trying to do, we can have the, the most robust, beautiful counter conditioning plan. But if a dog, for a dog that doesn't like to be like touched on the hip or something, but if there's some hip displacer going on, it doesn't matter how good of a trainer you are, you've got to address that underlying condition. And that also goes for in, enrichment and dog's quality of life and welfare issues. All those things should be addressed first before you move on to anything else. And then you go through the antecedent arrangements, which is your environment, making sure the environment is set properly and setting that dog up for success. It's by far the most important thing you can do in these aggression cases, again, because we don't want the dog rehearsing the behavior and practicing something we don't want. Well, we also don't want to add stress to an already stressed dog because that's what happens in aggression cases. And then, of course, you move on through positive reinforcement for desirable behaviors. And then what I use all quite often is differential reinforcement uh, in, co- in combination often with classical counterconditioning. Uh, and what that is, differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors is anything other than uh, barking, lunging, growling, snarling, snapping, or biting. Uh, but the dog is, uh, uh, we're, we're focusing on alternative response from the dog. So it's a little different than what's called incompatible or other. So there's DRI and DRO, and there's other DRs, but DRA is one that I focus on quite a bit. And then, of course, you would uh, 
want to take caution if you're moving into these other things, especially with extinction, of course, positive punishment, uh, because they can be very stressful for the dog. And remember what I talked about before, we're trying to reduce stress in an animal that's already stressed about a particular stimulus. So we've got to be very careful about adding stress because we're just going to be playing this seesaw game if we're starting to incorporate punishers or things that can add more stress. So um, it's, a, it's a great framework to take when you're looking at any kind of behavior change strategy. Absolutely. Very robust, isn't it? It's like a bumper lanes. Really, it keeps you in that game. Yeah. So you can, yeah, you can work through your yeah. case with the knowledge that you have an ethical approach to, to, to cases. And it's such a good point on extinction as well because we know the function of extinction is frustration and we don't want to be adding that into our behaviour change protocols even if it did work to reduce down that that, that behaviour so there's probably a more a more positive way about going about doing that right you can always find a way yeah yeah it's this uh, you know uh, it's been many many years since I've had to go to any kind of positive punishment technique because the the argument is is that you know the positive punishment is like a quick fix or it suppresses behavior and it can look good on paper the problem with it is it doesn't address the underlying motivation so all this we've been talking about is this aggressive behavior is motivated and it's driven by this underlying motivate these underlying associations and motivations such as fear or frustration or anxiety and so if we don't address that, you don't address the behavior. I can make it look good. I can, you can get a dog or a human to stop doing anything with enough punishment, right? Uh, and the human or dog will stop doing that behavior with enough punishment, physical punishment. And uh, But that doesn't address how the, that animal's feeling. And so the dog's still going to feel the same way about that person. Just they're going to wait until the person gets a little closer so they're not, they don't get punished. They can quickly bite, still accomplish their goal. Uh, so it's there's a lot of risks to um, using punishers in our training. We're maybe setting the conditions for that dog escalating up the ladder of aggression as we use those punishers to remove those defense mechanisms, those repertoires available to the dog. If we punish and suppress them, then they'll stop using them. But when they get the opportunity to, they may deliver contact-based aggression quick and fast. And uh, I wonder if we could then transition that on to, um, to, to, to bites themselves. And it is a difficult subject to talk about sometimes, particularly with, with clients. And, and I wonder, do you use a scale such as a Dunbar bite scale, Amy? So there are a couple of different bite scales. Um, there's actually uh, four that, I, that I'm aware of that are uh, generally used. But I've used Ian Dunbar's bite scale, which measures dog to human bites. Um, so it's very common. You can, that's easily found online. Just search uh, Ian Dunbar bite scale and come. there's a downloadable PDF. It's a good one for measuring dog to human bites. There are some limitations, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, the other one I use is Kara Shannon's bite scale. So she has two, Kara is a, a former uh, attorney. I think she went back to being an attorney, but she was also a, a dog trainer, but she also really looked at the, the legal aspects of dog bites. And so her bite scale was more robust in looking at risk assessment as well. Uh, and she also uh, uh, created a scale for dog to dog bites. So when it comes to dog to dog bites, I use Kara Shannon's bite scale, and uh, that's also available online. And you can get that as a downloadable PDF uh, because it looks at bite style. So Karis goes into like bite, sh hold and shake when it comes to assessing dog to dog bites. And even then, that's the issue with dog to dog bites is that there's sometimes no injury, uh, observable injury. So the dog might grab a, you know, a chunky lab by the, by the back of the uh, neck where there's a lot of loose skin and the dog might bite and shake and hold. And um, that doesn't, so then, People like say, oh my gosh, but there's no, there's no external puncture wounds. But what happens is oftentimes there's a lot of internal injuries, internal bleeding, 
fractures, broken bones can happen that we don't see uh, necessarily all the time. So it's important to note that particular bite style. So um, the, the bite scales are helpful for assessing risk in the potential for future bites. So future bites can um, uh, often are generally about the same level as previous bites, especially when you have a, high, a long history. So if you have a dog that's bitten 12 people all, all at a level two, we can reasonably assume the 13th bite is going to be a, a level two bite. So that's what the bite scales are used for. They're kind of risk assessment tools. Now, the drawbacks with bite scales is that, especially with the Ian scale, and I've, and I've talked to Ian about this, and I've been uh, working on a committee to uh, revamp the bite scale. Uh, both uh, all the bite scales really to have a more robust way of assessing risk for for dogs that have been because the issue with the bite scales it only looks at injury it only looks at the injury level it doesn't look at all the other factors involved um, and the issue with the in scale is that the difference between level three and level four is that it's the uh, it's measured the the how you categorize it is it's by the length of the canine tooth that's punctured the skin so level three bites are half the length of the canine tooth or less in terms of how, how far they've gone into the victim. Level four bites are more than half the length of the canine tooth. And here's the, here's the thing, maybe even in the, uh, we have some trainers listening in. I don't know of any trainers who are going around measuring puncture wounds, right? So we're not sticking rulers into victim bites. So it's, it's very difficult to tell the length of the puncture. Um, the, the one uh, factor that you can tell sometimes is that you'll see the incisor marks. So you see the two canine teeth marks, but then you'll also see the incisor marks, the teeth between the canine teeth. You'll see marks from that. That typically means that the dog has entered the skin more than half the length of the canine tooth because most dogs, the incisors start at about the uh, halfway point of the canine tooth. Uh, credit to Jim Crosby for teaching me that. And um, it's, uh, but again, some shelters, especially in the states here, there's there's that's their sole determiner if a dog is to be put out for adoption or euthanized, and that's a travesty because it doesn't account for all of the other factors. And there's so many other factors we have to consider. Things like what was the victim wearing, where was the victim been? A child, a dog to um, uh, like a dog that bites a child in the face, you're going to see much more injury typically than if a to an adult male wearing jeans. That gets bitten on the thigh just because of the way that this, the, the thickness of the skin, what the person was wearing. It doesn't look at provocation. You know, what was the person doing? Um, it doesn't look at the what the the uh, dog, the circumstances we put for the dog. You know, so there's there's many many things that are missing out of the scales that unfortunately don't allow us to form a robust prognosis. And so that's what we've been working on is trying to add in those factors to a much more, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, Dr. Karen overall is part of the committee as well. And she, and she pointed us to um, what's called a radiograph. And it's, it's, and we're looking at the system of inputting certain factors like the, the damage from the bite. So that's one of them, but also the other factors like provocation and it'll form like this, uh, so it's radiograph, so you can kind of actually see just how severe a case is based on how much the radiograph is filled up because it measures a bunch of different points. And so it's this really great tool, hopefully, when it comes to uh, right, we've got to run it through a couple of universities first uh, for testing. But once we get it going, hopefully that will create a much more robust picture, because one of the most common questions you can get is how severe is my case or how or is this dog a potential for adoption? And so rather than just looking at the bite history, let's look at all the other factors involved, because it's a travesty if, if a dog 
just got hit by a car and somebody was picking the dog up and the dog nailed the person on the arm with a level four bite. Next thing you know, a seven-year-old golden retriever that's been never hurt anybody in its entire life is put up to be possibly euthanized because of the level of bite. So um, we've got to have a much more robust scale and hopefully a deeper conversation in the industry as we continue to go along in assessing uh, risk and severity. Absolutely. That sounds super exciting. I look forward to seeing that. I agree. It probably needs a bit of a revamp. Yeah. Um, it, it's not particularly elegant and, and, and in some respects it was maybe fit for purpose at some point but I think it's a bit of a revamp yeah like when I talked to when we talked to Ian he was just like uh, you know I, I designed a scale for assessing uh, bite severity and to help people understand bite severity but he's like I don't he's like I don't even remember <laughs> why I developed it in the first place he's like uh, so you guys have that it's just here take it and do what you want with it and uh, you have my blessing so he's uh, you gotta love Ian because he's so generous with his information it's time he sure is yeah so, legend yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm right to say that the difference between a level and level three and level four the prognosis falls off a cliff according to that particular scale and yeah. so much of the the outcome is likely going to be negative for a level four versus a level a level three right yeah yeah and, and sometimes i see uh, trainers and consultants making decisions about if they're going to even take the case based on the bite level and again so if you know I'm, uh, somebody could say, oh, yeah, I've got a level four biter. And most people, some trainers, say, oh, I don't know about that. But it could be that golden retriever that just got hit by the car. And that's a very straightforward, simple case in terms of aggression cases. But then you could have a dog that's biting children in the face at a level two. So it's a low level bite case. And you might say, oh, I've got a level two biter. And that's so a lot of trainers. Like, oh, yeah, I'll take a level two biter. No problem. But then you find out it is biting children in the face. And it's been seven children. And they live in a home with kids and they have visiting kids and next to school and daycare and all these factors that make it a much more complex case. So it's not always just the bite level. And it's that frequency and severity and balance, isn't it? When you're assessing these particular incidents is how, how often are you seeing these aggressive episodes and how severe are, are the bites themselves? Is that a good indicator, right? Yeah. So in terms of the, the frequency of the severity you're talking about or? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, Ian also refers to something called the uh, fight bite ratio, and that's for dog to dog, uh, intra household or dog to dog kind of fight issues. But um, it's a good thing to look at in terms of how often are the bites and how severe are the bites. So I'd much rather have a case where the dog's bitten twenty times in the last month, all at a level one or two, than a dog that's bitten once every three months at a level four or five much less riskier in fact i love that data <laughs> you know it's it speaks poor management usually but it also speaks that the dog's got pretty decent bite inhibition and so it's, it's not as a severe bite case or risk uh, as the, that other case four or five biter and, and there are cases out there mike where you know a, a point of, of intake where you're saying look this is probably something that's gone beyond mm -hmm. intervention yeah. So anytime there's a significant risk of injury to either people in the home or to the general public, um, and that's cases I won't take on. And that's usually because of poor management or the dog is living with somebody that it's going after, whether it's another dog in the home or a human or a cat or any other animal that's in the home. And um, again, it's a high level bite. So if, the, if it's been death to the victim or level five, type of biting situation is often very risky to take those cases so you have to be very careful and decide if you're going to take the case on or if you might refer it up to uh, somebody at a higher level like a veterinary behaviorist um, because you know it, it's not only risky for you it's risky for the general public but it's risky for your own mental health uh, because 
if you decide to work on a case that has a tragic outcome and you keep taking on cases that have difficult outcomes, that takes its toll on you as the trainer consultant. So yeah, it's especially with kids. I've had a couple of cases over the years where the children I felt were um, uh, either at risk uh, at some point or at literally imminent risk, which I, I was very firm in that one case. I said, this dog's got to go right now. <laughs> and, uh, and fortunately that dog, they were, they were able to get the dog out of the home, but it's uh yeah you there are cases where i want there's no behavior change strategy it's just straight management or other options and you mentioned there um, about the emotional load of taking these cases on because they are different right the, the risks um, are higher yeah. and that that comes at a cost as a trainer behaviorist somebody working on aggression cases that has a longer term effect potentially on compassion mm-hmm. fatigue and, and all that kind of good stuff there yeah yeah, it's, it's, um, when I tell trainers, you know, they get into it and they're like, they know they can charge more for aggression cases and, um, they know there's a demand for it. So you can make a very good living taking aggression cases, but they're the volume of cases they have in mind. I have to say, take a step back for just a moment and let's reassess how many cases you're going to be taking because I, I see the same cycle over and over. Somebody starts taking aggression cases almost exclusively or high volume of them because they're, they're, you know, good for business in terms of, uh, making an income. So they pack their schedule and then they go about a year to a year and a half of doing that. And then they get burnt out. They need a couple months off. They can afford to do so usually, but they, they need a couple months off. And so I always tell people it's good to balance your schedule. Um, yes, you can take strictly aggression cases, but remember you can take 20 times more puppy cases than you can aggression cases because they just don't have the same, they don't take the same amount of energy from you emotionally and mentally. So it's important to keep that mind balanced. And so I, at my peak, I was taking at maximum 15 consults in a week. Then I dropped it down to about 10. Um, so um, it's, it's very much uh, a different type of thing. Now I will say that yes, they can be emotionally draining, but they can also be some of your most rewarding outcomes. So with the cases that do go well, it really fills your tank back up. So sometimes you get a couple of cases that don't go so well, but then when you get that one or two, that, that's, that's really, that has a great outcome. Next thing you know, you're just like, yes, I love what I'm doing. And you saved a dog's literal life because of the, what you did for that client. And that's very rewarding. So sure. it's a, it's, yeah, there's lots of, it's like, I don't know, it's like, there's lots of highs and lows to it, and uh, you just have to be prepared for it. Sure, and, and all good stuff, for sure, and I'm sure people will be benefiting from that. Now, I'm conscious we, we're at um, an hour and 15 minutes for you, Mike, and I'm, I'm keen to ask if anybody has any questions. There was a couple asked in the comments, and I'll, I'll pop them up. If anybody has any questions specifically for me, if they pop them in the comment section, I'll pull them up in front of us, and there was a couple of specific questions, which we'll find in a second. Okay, so there's one here. Can you see that okay, Mike? Yeah, so I'll read it for anybody so that they can see, if they don't see it. So if you, uh, Margo asks, if you are moving away, giving distance after giving food and stop because you see them escalating into something, they've already flipped into... I think it's come um, back off there. Yeah. I think there might be a second part. Yeah. Somewhere. I see a yeah. second uh, one, maybe um, at the bottom there. Jim, can you see the, the other question from Margo? It's the last comment that came in about how do you handle the looming so it's a different question but maybe Marco can restate that other one uh, how do you handle the looming liability of being accused of not curing the dog and do, uh, something happens after you are done um, good liability waiver <laughs> that spells all of that out actually my liability waiver actually uses that word cure and that I never cure the dog you never cure the, the actual 
um, aggression because it's normal behavior. It's a behavior response. We just make it less likely for it to occur based on what we're doing in the environment and also the behavior change strategies. So uh, I make it very clear to clients right away that this is not like a light switch or we're fixing a broken bone or something like that. It's not going to be cured. It's behavior. And you can use human analogies, you know, think about like some other habit, like I can get work on somebody not nail biting, they were like constantly biting their nails off. We can make it better, but it's easy to come back if the environment creates that condition again. So if the person's stressed or something happens in their life, they might go back to nail biting. Uh, So, or really any other habit you can think of um, that we want to undo. So the same thing can happen. So a good liability waiver, and then also good, um, uh, communication with the client, explaining realistic expectations. That's the other part too. I actually spend, uh, I've learned to spend more time on that conversation of creating realistic expectations for clients um, and having that discussion. What's realistic for that case? And from your mental health perspective as a trainer or a consultant, that's one of the best things you can do for yourself is to sit down with the clients, set realistic goals and expectations for both of you. So you're on the same page because if they're up here and you're down here with your expectations, trust me, it's the fastest way to burn out and compassion fatigue uh, because you're you're not going to be meeting the same goals. You're eventually not going to have this meet the same goal. And that's going to be like failure to one or both of you. So uh, clear communication right from day one. Uh, Good point. Isn't it so important? And also managing those expectations is actually a key component of it. And um, you tend to find that's maybe out of sync with potentially the reality of the situation too. So your people management skills need to be on point with aggression cases, is that fair to say? It definitely does, yeah. And you learn those little things as you go along because you know, you, you forget to say something to a client or you 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 get encountered with a problem three sessions in or four sessions in. You remember, right? You remember, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. So I'll remember to tell clients on the first session so I avoid this problem from happening later on. So it's it's a learning process. Uh, but um, again, your first consult should be spent, a lot of time should be spent communicating and building trust uh, with your client, being empathetic to what their needs, because that'll, that'll set you up for further on down the line. And being non-judgmental is so important in our so, area. So, so important. It's so it's it's difficult to be non-judgmental sometimes, especially in our own facial expressions. If they tell you some real, because sure. you will hear some really awful things people doing, and they don't mean uh, they don't mean it maliciously. They just doing what they've been told, or what they've read, or what their understanding is, or what their culture is, uh, and how they treat dogs and how they relate to dogs. And you hear that, and you sometimes have to really take a pause not to. Uh, show your uh, anger or your disgust or whatever you're feeling at that moment. Um, so there is, yeah, there's a lot of empathy and just understanding and patience and the being non-judgmental because most most people are just trying to do the best for their dog, um, regardless of what they've been trying. And if they've hired you, at least they're doing something. They're making a step towards helping their dog. So good point. And, and they're under duress too, right? Living with a dog that is capable of inflicting contact-based aggression, stressful day to day, isn't it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it's stressful enough. So again, just like we don't want to add stress to the dogs, we don't want to add stress to our human learners either. Okay, okay, great. If there's not any other questions in the comment section, maybe show a little bit of love for Mike. He's been an absolute superstar. This has been amazing. Um, just wanted to thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this, uh, Mike. Um, is there anything else you want to add? So are you comfortable with that? Um, I thought I think I think I saw one more comment from Margo again. I think she clarified. Uh, 
Sure. Wait, I will make a comment or make cut off again. I can I can read it from the uh, so uh, sure. Margot took the other one down, but this was what I was referring to before. I found out that if you're feeding or wasn't a training situation and stop because the dog is escalating, mom was annoying the dog by jerking the lead. Uh, I told her not to, but when I decided to quietly move away, and I decided to um, quietly move away, but the dog got more upset. Mom tugged the dog back, and the dog got wild and lunged. She couldn't control, and I disengaged carefully. Signaling was moving away. The dog came after my arm. In an unexpected moment when you don't have control of the leash, I have senior readers who use leash control. What do you do? So, good question. Um, that can happen. And what likely happened in that particular scenario, again, the leash, as you mentioned, is uh, I, I equate it, it's almost like pulling the trigger on a gun. You, as soon as that leash gets tight, and actually I'm giving a talk for the, the Empowered Dog Trainer Summit on, on leash reactive dogs and what can make things worse. And I have some great video of actual examples of the millisecond that leash gets tight and I put them in slow motion is when the dog explodes. And I have several examples of it for dog-dog and dog-to-human issues. And that's what can happen. The dog feels that leash tight. And through negative associations or frustration or restriction of movement, which drives uh, more fear into the dog, you get that behavior. And so it's like, Let's see the explosion. Pull the leash tight. So um, from a safety aspect, you did the right thing. Moving away slowly, disengaging, not making big movements, not making direct eye contact, giving the dog a moment, giving the dog some space because that's what they want. It's absolutely okay to do. Don't think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to reinforce that dog's behavior by moving away. Can you? Sure, but still better than the dog latching onto you, right? So uh, moving away, but then um, it's good to have a couple of other safety tools always on you. So in a in a sustained dog attack, it's always good to have the tools like um, spray shield or other uh, defensive handling tools. But I also like to have something on me that I can easily just feed to the dog, meaning if they're going to come bite me, I've got some barrier I can put in between me and the dog. Whether it's my treat pouch, whether it's my hat, whether it's something that I have I'm wearing. Um, I typically have bite gloves, so I'm, um, I'm not always wearing them. I'm just holding them. And so they're in my hand, and, and it just it just looks like a pair. It is a pair of gloves, but they're bite gloves, so they're Kevlar-lined bite gloves. I'm just holding them. If a dog, for whatever reason, breaks through those layers of safety, let's say they, the owner drops the leash or the collar, they slip their harness or collar, and then they take their muzzle off, and they're coming at you. Stick those gloves right in front of their face because that's usually what they'll bite first. The dogs almost always bite whatever you put in front of them first, unless they've been really trained to go after other areas. Most dogs are going to bite that. Um, and so that's that's uh, uh, going to allow you to back away continually while either the owner comes, scoops up the leash, or you get yourself into a safe, safe space. And you might have to continually move, maneuver the gloves, but or even... Uh, kind of presented as a target, but that can be very helpful. I've seen it many, many times. I've seen um, uh, great videos from other, from doing my workshops of, of like postal carriers using just their hat. They walk, walk into the yard, the dog's attacking them, and they literally get in and out and deliver a package and the dog's biting the hat as they walk out. It's part of the postal training of all things that <laughs> postal carriers have to go through. Or the, um, the, the meter service readers, they go in, they wear these vests, uh, so the guy just quickly takes off his vest and feeds it to the English bulldog that's coming at him at a at his foot level. But uh, that's the the thing you can do there. So it's good to have those things prepared ahead of time, and that'll that'll also help you keep safe. Uh, this experience. Okay, I do have a quick question for you, and make um, on yeah, yeah, your, your kit um, in terms of your your defensive handling kit and what you go with. 
I have the typical, you know, bait stick. Um, and I will have a citronella spray just just in case um, things go really south. But these are comes with a caveat, doesn't it? And the emergency handling moments. And uh, I wonder what else is in your kit. You mentioned your gloves there. You, do you carry anything else uh, with you from a defensive handling point of view? Yeah, so I have a, uh, a dog fight kit also. So I have a brake stick, something that's used yeah. to open a dog's jaws if they are latched onto another dog or human. Um, I have uh, a couple of air. Um, uh, like loud noise making devices like air horn and a compressed air type of device that just again for breaking up dog fights um those typically i don't use for warding off a dog attack because sometimes it can actually escalate things that hissing noise or uh, but uh so there's the sprays though so there's um depending on where you live in the world <laughs> spray shield is not available everywhere spray shield is just citronella in a can and the other thing is um uh, you might even actually go with a pepper spray based product those aren't legal everywhere but Depending on where you are, you can also use that. You hope you never need them. It's just like a fire extinguisher, but you're just going to be really glad you have them uh, if you um, you just cut off their gym for a second. Yeah, I see that. Mike. Yeah. Uh, just lost in the first second. Um, yeah, you're going to be really glad you have all of these things if you, once you do go out and purchase these things. But you should also practice with them, not on real dogs, but just like go spray a rock or go practice your techniques on something. Uh, when when you have a moment because you, you don't want to be trying to figure out how spray works in the middle of a, a dog attack. Can you still hear me, Jim? You, yeah, you I can just hear you. I've lost you off of my screen notes. I'm not sure what's happening. Yeah, you fell off me? the screen for a little bit, but now I can see and hear you, so it'll probably catch up in just a, in no just a moment. Here. No worries. There was one other question from John, which was one. Sure. Oh, that's a great question, yeah. Dogs that are ball fixated, uh, over treats to the point is uh, it is stress. So um, if you're in, it depends on the context you're using it. So if you're using it as a reinforcer, like we're using the ball to reinforce behavior, um, the first thing is just foundational training with the dog. So working on controlling that arousal level uh, is is an important aspect. So uh, in, incorporating in, like uh, uh, what we would call as good stimulus control, or incorporating behaviors the dog can stop for a moment and exhibit that are stationary or not in an aroused state in between those ball throws. So, um, you know, a good, a good way to learn more about that is following some of the, the big dog sports trainers that are out there, like Shades Whitesell and uh, Denise Fenzi and the people that are competing in dog sports are, are, are able to show that technique really well. But basically it's like getting the dog excited about the ball and then you ask for a sit and then a focus. And then you throw the ball and you start to build duration on that. So the dog knows how to turn it on and turn it off. So for some dogs, we've asked them to go to those hyper states of arousal from a breeding standpoint. So you Belgian, typical Belgian Malinois, for instance, or Border Collie, we've asked them to go from here to here really quickly because that's what they need to do in their work sometimes. And so uh, teaching an off switch. So they go up to here, but then quickly are able to come down here when we ask them to. That takes time and practice with the dog without exposure to the trigger. Once you have that, it's like the foundation to your house. Once you have the foundation to your house, then you can bring it out and expose it to the trigger, other dogs or whatever it is, and work in those environments because now the dog has that ability to turn it off. Um, and so then you can still reinforce behavior with a ball or treats if it's treats that gets the dog overstimulated. You might also look at switching up uh, what you're using to a lower arousal uh, item whether it's food. So if you're using hot dogs, you might use something lesser value. If it's a certain type of ball, you might choose a different ball just for the time being and then go back to what you were using before. So it's 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 all about arousal and playing with that and, um, and getting the dog to be able to control that 
as, as uh, you know, when we ask them to uh, through a queue. Great stuff, Mike. Is, is there any other questions for Mike in the chat? I seem to have lost a video feed for you, Mike, but I can still hear you. Oh, okay. I'm, I can see me <laughs> and I can see you, so that's a good thing. Okay, good stuff. Uh, <clears> seems to have problems just at my end. We'll let persevere for now. But if there's no other questions, um, then I would like to just thank you for your time. You've been an absolute legend um, today, Mike. Um, it's been, been so good and I really appreciate you taking your time. And uh, thank you to everyone um, in, in the chat and who came along to watch this. Great, greatly appreciated. So, so thank you again, Mike. And um, my pleasure. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you. I'm looking forward to future episodes. I know you have uh, Dr. Friedman coming up next, so I'm Good. excited for that one. I am too. A week on Saturday, um, we, have, we have Dr. Friedman on, which I can't wait for. So, so hopefully we'll have you on again, Mike. That was a super conversation. There was so much there, and I'm sure we could talk all, all day long about these about these subjects. Uh, so, so, so maybe there's a future future one in the in, in the pipeline. Uh, so, so thanks That's again cool. to everyone, and, and thank you to you, Mike. My pleasure. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care, everyone.